stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Imagine a world where an American city shuts off water to tens of thousands of its poorest residents, primarily people of color, while golf courses and corporations with longstanding delinquent water bills continue to receive water as normal. Or imagine a world where 40% of America were experiencing a drought so bad that the trillions of gallons of water depleted from the water table had caused the earth to actually rise in elevation. Or imagine a world where companies declare water the next oil rush, scrambling to privatize it, to own it, and profit from selling it back to people. Unfortunately, this is not a dystopian science fictional picture of the future, but the sober reality of life today. But when our guest, Ben Parzibach, began writing his latest novel, Sherwood Nation, he had imagined such a world before any of this had yet occurred. Ben Parzibach's first novel, Couch, a literary travelogue and fantastical quest, was an indie next pick. It has been compared to Douglas Adams by Publishers Weekly, Donald Barthelme, Jonathan Lethem, and Umberto Eco by Barnes & Noble, and to J.R.R. Tolkien by The Stranger. Parzibach is the founder of Walker Tracker, a pedometer-based step-tracking website for individuals and organizations. He's also the co-founder and editor of Gumball Poetry, a literary journal that published poems in gumball machines, and the creator of the Black Magic Insurance Agency, a citywide scavenger hunt and alternate reality game. And he's here today on Between the Covers to talk about his much-anticipated and timely new novel, Sherwood Nation. Welcome to Between the Covers, Ben Parzibach. Thanks, David. It's great to be here. So Sherwood Nation takes place in a near-future Portland um, that's trying to hold itself together amidst a protracted drought that has seized the western half of the United States. So tell us a little bit more about the world we enter on page one. Uh, what is going on in the country as a whole, and then what is going on in, in Portland more particularly? Yeah, exactly. So I I was particularly intrigued by what happens uh, in a sort of collapse period, and um, this is this is I think of it as very much contrary to uh, apocalyptic novels. Uh, but but something like, for example, an analogy I often use is is the Roman Empire um, collapses, and really Rome is is essentially destroyed in a day or two. But it's only over the next hundred years that the far reaches of that empire begin to feel that pullback when 
legionnaires' salaries dry up, when the uh, stone architects um, emigrate somewhere else, um, when there's no longer a system of um, security and food supply and um, and trade routes dry up. And what happens during that period? And I, and I think it's in a really intriguing period because there is a chance for a community to reinvent itself. When the, when the yoke of the far-off father nation or mother nation d- disappears, then, then a community can rise up and invent itself. And so I was, I was really playing with that idea in this book. And uh, so in the middle of this book, really there's sort of um, what, what affects to a weather collapse, a, a climate collapse in the western half of the U.S. The eastern half of the U.S. is, is experiencing different difficulties having to do with political infighting and ongoing wars. And it's sort of in the middle of this um, almost city-state structure in Portland, Oregon. The book takes place in Portland, Oregon, where, um, where the book begins. And in a way, there's sort of a mirroring between Portland and the country as a whole, because we have the West of the United States has sort of been left to its own devices. It's getting help from the East. It's getting shipments of, of water and intermittent services, but it's not functioning like the East is. And, and similarly, there's a part of Portland that still has city government as we know it, sort of. And then the, another part of Portland uh, that has been sort of left to its own devices. Yeah, that's exactly right. So just like in any city, there is different levels of city services. You know, I mean, you're aware of the the speed bumps always appear first in the wealthy neighborhoods and then the far out uh, reaches of of the city. Um, There's a large disparity in city services, and that's exactly what's happening here. As as the police force diminishes, as city services diminish, and there's less uh, financing for city services, um, there's all kinds of imbalance within the city itself, even though there's still a government operating and they're doing their best to kind of try to hold it together. So paint the picture of what it's like to be an average Portland citizen. There's water rationing, and, and how does that look? How would we imagine being a Portlander in, in, in the book prior to uh, Sherwood Nation rising within Portland? Yeah. So uh, the first thing is, is that... Um, the shortage of water is probably the most apparent, as well as as well as food rations. Um, though, because there hasn't been any rain or very little rain, and there's been an ongoing drought for such a long time, uh, much of the flora has completely dried out and died off. Um, the there's very high unemployment rate, of course. Um, though there has been a huge mass of people who have left the city, who have uh, left for the East Coast or for other parts that are more livable. Um, and you, at the very beginning of this book, rations are tightened again, and they must go, go receive their water rations from distribution points. And at this point, it is at the very beginning of the book, it's rationed down to just a single gallon per person per day. And how would we picture that gallon per person? Like, is there is there a way to, to make that tangible for us now? Like, does that mean that we don't shower every day, or does that mean that we don't shower every week? Yeah, I mean, it's the, trying to live off of a single gallon of water is extremely difficult. And I and I have characters in the book very thoughtfully uh, piece out their various water rations between the different activities of the day because, of course, there's rations needed for cooking. If you're a family, you can combine rations to cook a little bit. Uh, there is uh, bathing, of course. There is um, sanitation issues uh, other than bathing. 
there's drinking water. And so each part of that uh, gets into sort of parceled into tiny little bits. And drinking, of course, is the primary need there. And, and I played around with this idea a lot because, of course, the, the city has a advertising firm which helps it promote its ideas and help promotes its new um, ways of managing the crises. And so there's, there's a city-issued uh, water gallon called a unit gallon, which helps you measure very carefully your types of things and, and, or types of water. And there is a readout on top of it, and um, so that's that's featured prominently. And on, along the side of it is printed that which measure that which is measured improves. One of the things that I really love about the book is that it's exploring a slow catastrophe. So, in in contrast to an earthquake, a nuclear disaster, a hurricane. This is something that's happening gradually over time. And when we hear of people who are cities that go through uh, big catastrophes, uh, say like an earthquake in San Francisco, for instance, we often hear of people coming together and helping each other. And I wonder, to me, it feels like in Sherwood Nation, we see the effect of a slow catastrophe as being one that sort of is tearing the community apart, it seems. At the beginning... We have a, a man who's killed his dog so as not to give, have to share part of his his rations, and there's this sense of the potential, if not all, the already present reality of people possibly turning against each other. Is that something that you thought about the difference in how humans might respond to something that eats at you every day without an ending in sight versus something that is sudden and horrible that people might come together and and put aside their differences around? Yeah, I found this particularly intriguing to play with. Uh, With sudden disasters, it's really easy to rally support in a lot of ways. Like everybody is facing the same uh, equalizing sort of uh, catastrophe. People all chip in, and and there's not this this sense of a real slow cooker. And that slow cooker, you know, I think it's the, the original analogy is the frog put, placed in cold water on a burner does not even realize it's it's boiling until it's too late and and this sort of scenario where you know despair deepens over time people begin to do kind of odd and erratic things i mean one of my, one of my favorite characters spends most of the book digging a tunnel underneath his house and i i found that fascinating because it was it's a completely improper response to the disaster at hand um, but, but yeah, I think that in, in these kinds of cases, and also because of the slowness of it, um, which, which humans have trouble with this kind of stuff as well. I mean, we, we don't really understand climate change because it happens on a timescale outside of us. Um, we don't understand, um, types of diseases and things like that and the spreads of diseases because it happens on a timescale outside of us or erosion or environmental changes. Uh, so it was fascinating to play with, but but I also feel like it gets it gets begins to get some sort of interesting magnification uh, because of news cycles and this and this continual grind. Well, how how wedded did you feel to doing research versus just imagining the world? Did you did you find yourself compelled to to uh, go and consult? experts in either climate change or, or droughts or, or even other uh, historical events similar to this? Or did you, did you feel free to just picture what you thought it would be like? 
Yeah, I love that question of research, really. I, I, I mean, I, I tend to, the, my research style tends to be to write it and then go to see how wrong I was uh, in the end. I went and talked to um, several hydrologists after the fact who have essentially assured me that this type of drought, the severity of this type of drought couldn't happen in the Pacific Northwest excepting something like a super volcano in, in Yellowstone Park. Um, but that's not, that's not what matters to me, really. It's, it's really the sociological play, uh, the implications of, of how a community reacts, the chance to explore different types of heroism, both the rise and the fall and the media sort of echo of that within that kind of uh, situation. Um, I did look a lot at uh, warlordism um, because I found it really fascinating that it's, it's, really, in, it's really easy to demonize uh, a warlord. But in a lot of these cases where there's warlords, there is a power vacuum and they provide a, a certain set of social services as well, which is very odd, you know, to varying degrees, of course. Um, I uh, did a tour of the favelas in Rio de Janeiro. And um, that was super intriguing. I mean, basically, this is this is an they are enclaves. They are nations within the city themselves that are a sort of anarchy. But within that anarchy, of course, community organizations rise up. Uh, they develop their own laws. They work to secure resources, and it, it was a chance for a community sort of cut off from the outside to completely reinvent itself. And it was it was great. So yes, I I did do some research. We're talking today to Ben Parzabach about his second novel, Sherwood Nation. You're listening to Between the Covers. Well, speaking of the upside of warlords, let's let's introduce the heart of the the, the character who's sort of the heart of the story, Sherwood Nation, Renee, um, who's a barista in Portland and um, gets thrust unwittingly into a, a, an entirely new reality for her. So, t- tell us a little bit about what happens to her, and how she becomes something more than Renee in Sherwood Nation. Yeah, absolutely. So, so without, without spoiling too much, Renee, is, uh, she comes from an activist background. Her parents were activists, so she has roots in it. She has deep ties to it. Um, and it has, so happens during an activist, um, really one of her first major actions in the city as a water activist um, how she sees herself is completely transformed by media's interpretation of her action. Essentially, they film her doing one thing over and over, and they, they play that over and over, which, which creates a folk hero of her. And the city is, and then, of course, the, the law comes in, they, there's a manhunt for her, uh, and that, that really cements her reputation within the city. And so she's on the run at first, and um, and as she continually parses that out within herself to try to uh, to figure out who she is post these events, she uh, she begins to up her own game. She begins to to really understand who she wants to be and what she wants to do. And in the end, uh, it leads her to to um, gathering a force together and seceding a section of the city. And when you say she's a water activist, I hope this isn't a spoiler, but she's a water activist because they've discovered that people have, uh, that the distribution of water isn't fair and equitable in Portland. Yeah, that's right. That there is um, graft happening and parts of the city are getting illegal and undisclosed water 
Yeah, at that's the exactly of right. Others. And and they 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 deem her Maid Marian, um, sort of, of of Robin Hood fame because because of that. Because really her actions uh, were a sort of steal from the rich and give to the poor, and that immediately becomes sort of a copycat crime. And and that has that's made her famous within the city. Well, one thing that's really cool about the the sections that are around Maid Marian trying to figure out how am I going to create a new society because she's in the part of the city that uh, due to limitations of resources the government is sort of just abandoned. It really does sort of evoke the DIY ethos of Portland the the way she's gathering together the strengths of the of her neighbors and trying to figure out how things go but as you said around the upsides and downsides of warlords even though um she's good intentioned, she's creating, in a sense, a large cooperative. She's also at the same time having to be, perhaps by necessity, a benevolent dictator of sorts. So there's that tension between um, this sort of utopian desire and then the true limitations that come when you're facing real things. Like, like, what are you going to do about crime? How are you going to get services? Can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges that Sherwood Nation faced immediately upon its birth? Yeah, so it, and it's interesting that you use the term benevolent dictator. That the word dictator is is to bring back the Roman Empire. It was a person elected by the Senate to handle the nation in times of crises, and it, it doesn't have those negative connotations that we assign to it today. And I, I was really playing with this idea of democracy and how well does democracy respond to states of emergency. And so I did have Rene as a dictator, and of course that, that has some uh, downsides and some upsides, of course. There is, there is not a community vote there, though I made this sort of an, an altered sort of state where there is a lot of community input and there is a lot of cooperative action in there. But she is; she still has sort of an iron fist here, where she needs to make a call. And if there is a uh, crime that she can't figure out, then a person is just ejected from the nation back into the surrounds of the city. Um, but yeah, there was. I mean, first of all, in a situation like that, with such incredibly scarce resources and on the tail of chaos and riots, security was her first concern, and second was taking care of those citizens, uh, securing water resources and making sure that uh, people had the means to survive. Well, one of the more fun parts of the book is watching Renee become Maid Marian and how she navigates her relationship with her boyfriend. Because her boyfriend stays behind in Portland proper, and he's an ad man, and he creates slogans often for the benefit of the city. So in a weird way, he's creating propaganda for the person that his girlfriend's opposing, but he's also starting to not recognize his girlfriend within this new figure, Maid Marian, as she has to make these tough decisions, some of which not everyone understands, perhaps. Um, they're having to navigate a not only a long-distance relationship, but potentially a, a metamorphosis. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's there's an incredible transformation that happens within Renee. I love this idea of a long-distance relationship, but really it was. It's, it's across international boundaries, right? But really, it, there's about four miles that separates them between the city proper and the nation of Sherwood within the book. And, and what you also are mentioning here is that Zach... Uh, Renee's boyfriend works for the mayor, and and we spend a lot of time in the mayor's viewpoint. Who is who is a mayor that I think 
in times of prosperity, the city would love. He's an ideal, idealistic mayor, um, but but in terms of his being able to handle this kind of crisis, it's it's very difficult. And he must have been, I would imagine, a really fun character to write because he's he he is losing grip of his of what limited power he has and tends to make the worst decisions in in these moments of. Uh, of powerlessness. Yes, absolutely. And of course, he turns to things where he does have some sense of control, and he's a bit of a video game addict. He's got his own generator, of course, as as part of uh, Portland's due to, to run the mayor's office. And yeah, so he, he exercises control over what he can control, but he is losing control over a lot. Do you have a section you'd like to read from Sherwood Nation? Yeah, sure. I, I have a section here that is from... Um, the point of view of a family that is living on the city side, not in Sherwood. And it's from the the man um, who is building a tunnel underneath his house. And and, and the tunnel is is not, he doesn't have a, a clear sense of what he's doing. He's doing it almost as self-therapy, right? That's exactly right, yeah. He is, uh, other than, it is, it is his sort of strange personal response to this crisis. Afterwards, Neville and Cora hugged in the hallway in the dark. The house was quiet with the whir of everything that whirred gone dead. I should also mention here that there are um, sort of rolling power outages. And and in fact, there's only power two times per day for about an hour each. uh, Because, of course, the majority of the Pacific Northwest gets its power from dams and there's no water in the rivers. The house was quiet with the whir of everything that whirred gone dead. The streetlights were all somber flagpoles now. Cora held on to the news about the new rations, and a sickening hollow stuck in her chest. He'd been funny with the kids at storytime and adept, and she didn't want to leech any poison from the world outside the house into him just yet. He could spend the rest of the night wrapped in anxiety, or he could spend it in his tunnel, so she decided to spare him what he'd learn at work tomorrow anyway. They kissed, but each was already leaning toward the activities they'd set aside for themselves for the night. That which let the mind ease into solitude and quiet, the antithesis of child-rearing. She would read by candlelight, and he would dig. Were it to happen, this would be the moment that passion took hold. He pressed into her subtly, experimentally, but when she patted his flank with a beat of closure, his mind quickly moved on. They went their separate ways into the hermitage of their projects. Neville paced about the kitchen looking for any last chores so as not to make his descent seem overly eager, and then he opened the door and padded quietly down into the darkness and felt his way across the cement floor to his hole. The hole was a reminder of his small cache of water and thus a reminder of his omnipresent thirst. The bottles glistened in the light of the flashlight down a branch of the tunnel. What water he could stand to spare from his daily routine was squirreled away down here. He had to trust the city. What choice did he have? He had a family. He had to trust and be steady until that moment when he could no longer trust, and then he must radically and decisively change direction to protect his family. He was driven by hazy yearnings that bubbled up inside of him, unaware of their origins or meanings, and thus he dug, as if somewhere deep in the earth was concealed a clearer picture of himself. He patted the tunnel supports on his way to the end of the tunnel, listening for the give or weakness. Then he moved to the back of the cave and tapped away at the clay and rock there, peeling back layers of time with each loosed rock. He swung the pickaxe into the wall of earth, knowing that several floors up his children, were they awake, would hear only the faintest tink, 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 as if a man were slowly hollowing out his prison passageway. 
A section of the wall gave way and buried him up to his knees, and he yelled out. His hands shook, and he searched about for the bottles to make sure they were sound. When the dust settled, he tentatively freed himself from the rubble and sat atop with his head in his hands. What a stupid way to die. He wanted to believe he would sense this kind of danger, especially now, as a parent, he felt a prescience of future disaster ought to be his right, a special power granted to all fathers. He stood and placed his forehead against the very back end of the cave, felt the coolness of it, and thought about how down here there was a safety and quietude. He'd begun to fantasize about burial here, about a sudden collapse of the cave that would leave him disappeared from the struggle to maintain, from the thirst from his children and wife and the fumes of traffic congestion, the duties of work and the complicated ties of relationships, from Wi-Fi and cell towers and GPS signals and security cameras and radio and television and electromagnetic waves, utility bills and wars, pairs and parents and climate change, the drought. It would be a stony, deathly peace. For a moment, he imagined them all here, his family, united in burial, laid happily together, wrapped cozily, snug and still as mummies. He wondered if he was depressed and whether he ought to see a doctor about getting some medication. He pulled his headlamp down from the top of his head and shone it on the section he was working on, veiny tendrils of dead tree roots, a layer at neck height of century-compressed roadway backfill, below that black earth with stones the size of skulls. He picked at this earth with a spade, feeling around in it. He was looking for something, but he didn't know what. Chunks gave way, he'd hit a softened vein, and so he dug. You've been listening to Ben Parzibach read from his latest novel, Sherwood Nation, from Small Beer Press. In the section you just read, uh, Neville is having to trust partly because he has the responsibility of raising a family and partly because there's no nowhere else to go. He's stuck here like everybody who's been left behind here in, in Portland. And I, I was curious about how it felt to write a, a book, Sherwood Nation, that is so uh, rooted in place and so place-based, when your first novel, Couch, was both more overtly fantastical but was also more uh, more obviously a quest-based narrative. Um, I would love to hear what your what challenges or, or upsides you saw to to holding people within a, a situation like the drought in Portland versus writing the the quest of couch that took your characters freewheeling around the world. First, I mean I have to admit it's I'm I live in Portland and it's it's a joy to write about this city. I, I love this city and I, I have I was not born here but I have adopted this city and, and it's it w- it is with special pleasure that I call out landmarks in the book. Um, even as I destroy them and do terrible things to them or create riots in the streets. It's 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 it comes from a sort of love of this place. And so it almost feels obvious to me that I would want to write stories that that put all my characters in here, that put us all in here living alongside other things. And I and I also derive special joy from thinking of people of readers who might pass a water tower, for example, as there's a there's a several very significant scenes with water towers or pass some of the landmarks in the city. And and uh, so I, I love to do that. In fact, I've been thinking about uh, my next book and and it will also be in, in Oregon. So it's it's one of the, the special pleasures of, of writing. 
Well, even though like on the surface, the two books seem really different in sensibility, I think that there's some things that are very similar in the sense that they both put pressure on the characters to be inventive and also to reinvent themselves. It feels like in, in Couch, you have the constraint of the magical couch and what it's forcing them to do. And here we have the drought, even though they're both um, one group of characters is able to move and the other isn't ultimately there's a way in which the narrative is forcing them to have to um, truly uh, rely on some survival resources. And it made me think of your other projects like gumball poetry with uh, can we look at poetry in a different way or, or uh, the operation peach blow, the scavenger hunt, which is sort of a way of telling narrative in real time in the city itself. Uh, do you see that connection between the books and between your interests in general around this, uh, you know, having demanding a certain savviness of your characters to problem solve? Yes. Um, yeah. What an interesting question. I, I, um, I certainly see a connection between the books and I, and I do hope readers do too. I, I realize that to some, it may seem like I've migrated from uh, a book that was essentially a very humorous book to one that seems very dark. But I, I find a lot of this book very funny as well. Uh, and I really hope readers do too, even though it's like these very oppressive themes and there's riots happening in the book and dictators and stuff like that. But there was parts of it that I just, that I, that I love. So I do see that kind of continued con continuity in the book. And, uh, oh, the, another thing you mentioned is uh, constraints. And, and I think you and I have talked about constraints before. I know that you really enjoy constraints and I find constraints totally fascinating. The idea of having um, these three boys who cannot put down a couch was sort of an amazing constraint to work with in couch. And, uh, and in this kind of case where, where you are creating a, a fictional universe on top of a, a real city, but in a completely altered condition was, was another kind of wonderful constraint. You, you'd mentioned earlier, I mean, we talk about humorous. One of the things I thought was humorous were some of this, the ad agency slogans that uh, were made. But what was kind of doubly funny was that the one that you mentioned earlier, that which is measured improves. When I went to your Walker Tracker website for your business, <laughs> it's not only a slogan that you use in your business, but it's actually a real slogan from somebody else. You didn't make that up. But I, I, I want to know about that slogan. What, is that, what does that slogan mean to the book? And to, uh, yeah. and to you in general. Yeah, I don't know. That that slogan resonates with me very strongly. And I think it's that uh, I'm so aware of living in a subjective universe and a subjective um, uh, take on reality that, that any kind of measurement of real things uh, it, I find so fascinating and vital. And, and I think that's what really drew me to pedometers. This is, this is a, like my whole other personality here. But, but this whole idea that, that there is something that has always felt very subjective, um, you know, this, this amount of movement in a day that suddenly there's a device that measures that is fascinating. And of course, now we're, we're suddenly, I, I started that years ago, and now we're suddenly in this age of quantifying everything, which is a little scary in itself. But, but I, I do very much like that. I, I set that as a goal for myself in terms of, of many things that I do. I'm, I'm an avid word counter. And so I feel very strongly that the number of words that I mark down and I, I keep long journals of how many words I've written per day or how many words I've edited. And I do feel like that 
that does inspire a sort of improvement or, or even just a competitiveness with your past self, which is fascinating in itself. And in this case, it's it's vital to survival to know how much water you're using day day by day. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know when you are talking about whether you have two or four pints to be able to drink a day, that's vital. Well, let's talk about the the way that the world has caught up to your imagination. So there are cities that are now large cities like Sao Paulo and Los Angeles that are considering water rationing. And and I mentioned in the introduction. Detroit and the drought that's happening in the western half of the United States and corporations that are trying to privatize water and not call it a human right. Um, how did it feel to have all of this news catch up to you as you were writing the book? It, it made me think of, of of Super Sad True Love Story by Gary Steingart, who wrote a lot of prescient things about technology and about the currency crisis with China. And shortly upon its release, they no longer seem like science fiction anymore. Um, how, what was that experience like? Yeah, I feel like Gary Steingart, really, his his take on the addictiveness of, of personal devices was super compelling in that book. I thought that was awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, the the running grim joke that I have been talking about is that it's, I promise it's not a publicity stunt just because it's it's absurd how many things from this book have suddenly manifested themselves this year. Um, the drought with California is is a horrible and extreme example. Um, I, I don't know how, what percentage of your listeners know, but I mean, this is sort of off the record charts for uh, for the for any measurement of California that we've ever had before. And things like you know, there's ten thousand acres of almond trees that have uh, died, and those will never come back. And they just they anyway. Terrible stuff. The Detroit water shortages, where there is personal delivery of water, and um, and they've cut off water to thousands of people. Of course, the poor people or the people who are uh, not corporations, I should say, uh, because the corporations still have their water supplies, even though they are hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt to the the Detroit Water Bureau. I mean, it's it's a sort of a grim pleasure seeing that because it's like, oh, wow, that's so close to my book, but what a horrible thing to ha- have happened. I mean, I, I like the idea that that a, a novel, uh, especially one that's sort of science fictional, I, 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 I think you could call this semi-science fictional. I'm not sure how people would call it, but um, it, it's sort of a decision tree for our future, right? You can read these novels and you can decide that's not the way you want to go. Like George Orwell wrote fantastic novels and, and it it's integrated into our culture, into this sort of sense of the Cold War and we're always at war with Eurasia and, and this sort of stuff. And, and that, I feel like, works as a decision tree, tree to sort of hopefully branch us as a species away from that kind of stuff. Well, in this case, I, I do sort of wonder almost if my book didn't come out soon enough to help branch some of our decision-making away from what's happening right now. Well, one thing that I think really makes Sherwood Nation stand out in that regard is that it um, it ultimately lands on a hope. It's not, it's not entirely appropriate to call it dystopian in the sense that even though what's happened is horrible in the book, it seems to be more about putting the onus on, um, well, what do we do about it now? And the possibility of... of you know, crisis is an opportunity to reimagine the way we structure society. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think I think there's been a lot of wonderful signs of that 
recently. Um, you and I both have talked about Dahlgren, which was uh, by Samuel Delaney, which was an amazing book written at the tail end of, of the 60s revolution. And it was sort of takes place in this world where perhaps all of the thousand-year dynamics of patriarchy and corporate structure and all this stuff, what if, what if all those sort of societal systems are just up for grabs and for reform, reformation? reformation? Uh, and I think that is, that is completely fascinating. And I, th- I think there have been some really interesting movements. Um, certainly the way that the Internet works uh, helps precipitate a lot of those movements. We look at things like the Arab Spring. We look at things like the Occupy movement. Um, there is a lot of hope, I think, for really reworking the social order and the political order before we hit the end. That positive note feels like a good place to end. It was, <laughs> it was, it was great having you on Between the Covers, Ben. Thank you very much, David. We were talking today to author Ben Parzibach about his latest book, Sherwin Nation. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Mm-hmm.